I'm Derek Alexander Pope, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast rediscovers the untold stories of the American quest for liberty and justice for all. This week, we connect the past to the present in a new segment we call, Can I Get a Witness? In our last three episodes, we explored the political and legal efforts to establish voting rights during Reconstruction. And we are joined this week by two experts who will help examine that climate affecting those rights today. Theron Johnson is founder and CEO of Paramount Consulting Group, and Brian Robinson is president of Robinson Republic. And they are here to help us make sense of our ballot box blues. Theron, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on this segment of Hidden Legal Figures. This is our maiden voyage on our Can I Get a Witness segment where we are connecting the past with the present and certainly appreciate you both being here. Thank Good to you. be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Before we begin, why don't you both tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and how you got to be political consultants and to how much of your work involves elections and voting rights. Brian, why don't you go ahead and start? Well, I started out in politics working on Capitol Hill for a member of the House from Georgia and ended up being on the Hill for two different members from Georgia from 2003 till 2010 and came home and did Nathan Deal's campaign for governor and was deputy chief of staff in the governor's office for for five years, did his reelect and then started my own communications business. And I do some political consulting now through my business. It's largely a communications PR business, but we do dabble in politics from time to time. I wouldn't say that I am directly involved with voting rights too much, but I did in 2006 when I was working for Congressman Lynn Westmoreland of Georgia. He was the primary person calling for major reforms to the Voting Rights Act, which was up for a 25-year renewal in that year. And it, of course, passed. And that's the law that was eventually thrown out by the Supreme Court in the Shelby case. And all of the arguments that we were making, and I had the the honor of writing a lot of the messaging around it because we were a a one-man band. It was just Westphalen out there doing this to his credit. Everything that he said ended up coming true about the problems with the renewal Uh, The fact that they weren't taking a look at the entire country, that they were penalizing countries, I'm sorry, that they were penalizing states based on uh, the 1964 election without updating that formula in any way. And they they could not, they never made the argument that the covered states were fundamentally different than the non-covered states. And that, of course, is why it was declared unconstitutional and that was the the right ruling. So that has been my number one thumbprint on voting rights in this country was I wrote all of that messaging that ended up going in front of the Supreme Court. And it was really cool getting to listen to that case uh, on audio and hearing my words, nobody else but me knew they were my words, uh, spoken through, uh, through that chamber. So that was really cool. That's an interesting aspect of your background. And we're definitely going to talk about that case a little bit later in our conversation. Theron, what about you? What's How did you get started in becoming a political consultant? Yeah, I cut my teeth in politics very early on in Athens, Georgia. My mom played a pivotal role in me getting involved in just community 
activism, and then I've been involved in Atlanta politics for now for, for almost 20 years. I've had the honor of working for a lot of great elected officials, uh, Congressman John Lewis, President Barack Obama. And so it's just been a tremendous honor to be able to be on the front lines and making sure that people have a voice in this political process. Um, since 2017, I've run my company, Paramount Consulting Group, and we've been doing very well. And I had an opportunity to lobby for some really good issues. And Brian and I do a couple events on commentary together. We have a podcast called Political Breakfast uh, that's very, very well uh, known in Georgia and nationally. And so just really looking forward to all the uh, different political opportunities that are yet uh, in front of us. So very good to be on the show with you today. Thank you. And in case our listeners want to check out your podcast, what was the name of it again? Political Breakfast, W-A-B-E, 9.1, with Dennis O'Hare, myself, Theron Johnson, and Brian Robinson. You can subscribe for any of the apps on any of your phones and just type in Political Breakfast and download the podcast. Very, very good. Our first three episodes this month focused on the political environment that shaped how Reconstruction was conducted. One historian has said that the issues that agitate us today politically all stem from that period. And one of those issues is voting rights. We've taken a look at the the political and legal efforts that were prevalent in the establishment of voting rights during Reconstruction. This past February was the 150th anniversary of, of the passage of the 15th Amendment to the Constitution. It barely made a dent in public attention, and the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment took place this past August. These two amendments addressed voting rights based on race and gender, and they both carry a lot of historical baggage with them, or as I like to call it, the ballot box blues. Theron, where are we today in terms of both protecting and guaranteeing people's right to vote? You know what? The struggle and fight continues. Uh, Congressman John Lewis, who is my hero, uh, on the very last days that I talked to him of his life, he was still very concerned about making sure that Americans, and particularly Georgians, have the right to vote. When we see the incidents that have happened in Georgia, where people are being purged off the voter files, when we know that there's still work to do with strengthening our Voting Rights Act, I think the struggle really continues. And so as we approach this 2020 election, we want to make sure that people in Georgia know that me and other organizations and Democrats are going to do everything we can to make sure that people have that secure right uh, to exercise their, their right to vote. We also have to take into effect that we have a COVID-19 crisis, a deadly pandemic going on. Uh, then we have, we're failing in the most fundamental democratic duty, which is to give people the opportunity uh, to vote. Voting has never come easy for people of color. Uh, we know our history. You look at how much of a struggle it's been. You kind of outline some of the historic moments that we've um, been able to uh, get through. But it's also never come easy for people who don't make much money. Um, and that's why we have to also talk about voting, but you can't just talk about race. You have to talk about class. And if you look at voting rates that are increasing directly with household incomes in every presidential election, aside from 2012, uh, white voters have turned out at the highest rate. There are a dozen of races on the ballot every two years, and it's not easy to engage in politics, um, you know, within that, that time frame. And so 
I just think that I wanted to kind of bring it here locally to Georgia when I give that example of what's going on in Union City, just to still say, yes, we've made some progress, but there are still barriers, particularly uh, barriers that disproportionately affect people of color and low income uh, citizens in, in the state of Georgia. Brian, you worked in the highest levels of state government. Um, some of the issues that Theron raised, uh, they find their way inside legislative halls sooner or later. And from the outside looking in, there's usually no shortage of individuals who are camera ready to use some language that we're familiar with hearing that clocks are being turned backwards. Maybe there's cultural insensitivity. Uh, one of the things that the listeners to the podcast are familiar with that in the Reconstruction period, uh, it seems that what Republicans are today, Democrats were then, and what Demo Democrats are associated with being today, Republicans were then. When these claims, which are most often lodged against Republicans on, on the Republican side of the aisle today, where you have worked, as you've mentioned, how are these issues perceived? I feel like Republicans in Georgia have a really strong record as far as voter access over the last 20 years that that they've been in power. We have seen a historic increase in our voter rolls. We see African-Americans and white Georgians voting in the same percentage of the population. We see a state where black Georgians have more elected officials than any other state uh, in the country, a diverse General Assembly, a diverse congressional delegation. And and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have made tremendous strides. And I push back tremendously on the voter suppression narrative. And Theron's heard me talk about this too many times, but you would have to be able to show that black people are voting in much smaller numbers than white voters are, and, they, and they're not. They're voting in the same, the same numbers. So if there is a suppression effort, it's failing miserably. The stuff that gets brought up when you talk about voter suppression is often technical issues. We hear that long lines are voter suppression. Well, almost always those long lines they show are in counties where Democrats are in control. So it's not so much like Republicans doing it. You can't make that case at, at all. In fact, in Georgia, when you go get a driver's license, you're automatically enrolled to vote. It's, it doesn't matter what your race is. You don't have to do anything. It just happens automatically. That right is, is built in for you. Uh, Governor Kemp, when he was Secretary of State, put in multiple new ways to register to vote. You can do it remotely. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to mail anything. It's just all done automatically. It's never been easier to vote in our nation's history. Earlier this year, in the middle of the pandemic, a Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, sent out absentee ballot requests to every registered voter in Georgia. I, again, there was no no effort to suppress anybody. It was an effort to encourage participation in our democratic process, and Georgians responded to that exuberantly. We had record turnout in the middle of a pandemic, and we're about to have another record turnout this year. Over, We predict over 5 million votes will be cast. There are already 2 million in the bank. They've already been cast. And in, in last week, the percentage of the electorate that was Black in early voting 
is higher than the percentage of uh, black people in the state. So I don't think that there's anything that backs up that narrative. And what really hurts me and, and it gets under my skin is as a Republican, as a Georgian, as a person, I'm horrified by the inequity, by the, by the oppression that occurred in our state for hundreds of years. Jim Crow, the, the, the legal holding down of uh, Georgians, it's wrong. And in the last 50 to 60 years, we have had revolutionary change without revolution. And I believe that we are in a place of uh, equal access to the polls and rhetoric that suggests otherwise, rhetoric that connotes racial motivations hurts us as a society. It tears at the fabric of our democracy. And I don't care if it's Republicans talking about voter fraud or Democrats talking about voter suppression, it hurts our democracy and I don't like it. Some would argue, Brian, that the revolutionary changes that you talked about that recurred without revolution were brought into existence by the Voting Rights Act, which was passed in 1965. Uh, it seemed to have solved most of the problems that we've been discussing and created a lot of the milestones that you mentioned. There was a part of the Voting Rights Act that required certain states to submit any changes it wanted to make in voting laws to the Justice Department for what it's called preclearance. They had to submit it to the Justice Department before those changes could go into effect. These states were called covered jurisdictions. Georgia was one of the covered jurisdictions since the law went into effect. Uh, but in 2013, that part of the law called Section 5 was struck down by the Supreme Court of the United States in a case called Shelby versus Holder. Theron, how important was the Voting Rights Act generally and Section 5 preclearance specifically? And what has happened in since that time, the court since of the since the time of the court's ruling? Uh, again, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about you know my hero and uh, who recently passed uh, this year in 2020, and Congressman John Lewis, where he played a pivotal, instrumental role in passing the Voting Rights Act. And so this was an act that was passed in 1965. Uh, it was a landmark piece of legislation that ensured that particularly black folks didn't have to didn't just have the right to vote. You know, when I talk to Congressman Lewis, that's one of the things that he oftentimes wanted me to remind people is that it wasn't just about them getting the right to vote, but it was more importantly about the ability to actually exercise that right. And immediately after the Supreme Court's decision that you mentioned, when they struck down Section 5, when Republican lawmakers in Texas and North Carolina, two states previously covered by the law, uh, moved to enact the new voter ID law and other restrictions. Now, a federal court would later strike down the North Carolina law, uh, writing it, it was designed to target African-Americans in uh, almost surgical, with, with almost surgical precision. And so I have to just give our listeners that historical context. In, in 2012, 2018, there were almost 2,000 polling places uh, closed in states previously covered by the Section 5 of the Voter Rights Act. Um, and so what have we seen in the last seven years is entrenched political powers, almost exclusively Republicans. It's been an attempt to maintain control by limiting participation in a democratic process, which, by the way, we have to remind them sometimes, and that is voting. But there's 
a reason they've lost the popular vote in all but basically uh, every state, you know, every time uh, since 1992, if you really look at your, your history, they've lost the popular vote because it's it's because of our electoral system and our electoral college. But that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother day. But I think that, you know, while Brian gives a lot of credit to what Republicans are trying to claim that they're doing to increase voter participation, what I say to that is that the Secretary of State is just basically doing his or her job. The reason we're seeing the participation sort of increase is because of Democratic officials like Congressman John Lewis and others that have been working to remove these barriers that have been put into place. You know, we got the purging of these voters that are, are going on. And while we talk about sending out absentee applications, yeah, that's a good thing to do and we should do it. But there's still tens of thousands of voters in Georgia that never received that application. Um, I mean, certainly never received their ballot once they submitted their application back. And so we still have a long way to go. Um, and we just cannot talk enough about how striking down Section 5 of the Voter Rights Act was just extremely detrimental uh, to people of color when it came to their right to exercise the right to vote. Congress reauthorized the Voting Rights Act on five occasions. It first did it in, again, first passed in 1965, and it used certain criteria to determine who was going to be the coverage, the co those um, covered jurisdictions. Reauthorized it in 1972, again in 1977 and 1982, and for the final time in 2006. But each time it reauthorized it, it relied principally and primarily upon the formula that it used in 1964. Shelby said that the Shelby case said that Congress should have updated the formula. Brian, is it fair to say that Congress dropped the ball here a little bit? Is it fair to say that the court ruling was not the villain, but that Congress's failure to use current criteria in establishing its current formula, which is the law's language for determining which states would be covered jurisdiction, is it fair to say that Congress was the real culprit here? Absolutely fair. It's 100% true. And guess who said it 14 years ago? Me. You know, and I worked for Congressman Westmerle, and so it's really him saying it, but I was working for him at the time and, and writing a lot of the communications on it. And, and Westmoreland was prophetic. Everything that he said came true, and he was right. And he didn't just throw bombs. He offered amendments. He and uh, former, now the late Charlie Norwood, former Congressman Charlie Norwood, offered amendments that would update the formula. And, and basically, they were treated like idiots. I mean, they were they were so disrespected by the Republican leadership at the time. It was a Republican majority that passed it. And there was absolutely zero interest in taking a serious look at where we were in 2006. And this was a renewal for 25 more years. That would have put it into the 2030s, uh, 60, 70 years after passage of the Voting Rights Act. If we needed Section 5 for 70 years, then it didn't work. It's, it's a broken system if we need it that long. When it was passed in 1965, Section 5 was considered a temporary emergency measure, okay? We were almost 50 years later, and the emergency measure was still in place. That's absurd. I mean, the idea that Georgia hadn't changed in 50 years, which was their assertion that, this, that we're still broken, that we're still suppressing the vote, that people don't have equal access to the ballot box based on skin color, that's absurd. And 
Congress, in, a, in, in a, an attempt to look like they like they were just so progressive, did something that made zero sense. It 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 was disrespectful to our state and to other states that have made tremendous progress. It did not give us credit for the changes that had been made. And here's where Congress really dropped the ball, Derek. They needed to make the case that Georgia and other covered jurisdictions were substantively different. They were empirically different than non-covered states when it came to access to voting. They made zero effort to do that. No, what they did was make a list of alleged complaints about voter access in those covered states. Didn't take a look at any other state. None. So there was no comparison. And so the voters in Georgia, South Carolina, Louisiana, all these others were being treated differently by the federal government with no evidence to back up the different standard. So Congress did drop the ball. They cannot plead ignorance because Lynn Westmoreland and Charlie Norwood told them that this was out of date and needed to be updated, modernized to meet the new reality. They refused to do it. They were high and mighty and self-righteous. And what happened in 2013 with Shelby is a direct result of the irresponsibility and uh, carelessness and self-righteousness of the congressional majority in 2006. They could have fixed this. And look, we don't really need Section 5 today, but if we're going to have Section 5, and here's the point that we were making, then it needs to be applied equally throughout the country. We should not be circled out based on an election in 1964. That makes zero legal sense. So if there's a need for it, fine. But treat everybody equally. But there's not really a need because we've got Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act where if someone's rights are suppressed, if you don't get fair access to the ballot box, you have a legal remedy through the federal government to fight it. So that is something that is a nationwide standard. It's working. And today in 2020, we keep saying the Voting Rights Act was gutted, all this stuff. It's not gutted. It is in effect. It is working. And Georgians are being treated the same way as every other American. And that's where we should be. You both mentioned earlier about the differences in the political opinion that you have. And clearly that comes through. But there and Brian also <laughs> both mentioned that despite your political differences, you remain civil and friendly. And I definitely think I, I would say we're friends. That. We're, we're, we're not just friendly. We're, we're actual friends. And so civil and actual friends. And I think our, our listeners can hear that. You know, last week we heard during the confirmation hearings of, of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to be elevated to the Supreme Court. We heard a lot of people talk about the relationship between Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Antonin Scalia, which is reminiscent of the relationship that you two are, are, are demonstrating today. And people talked about our divide, how divided we are politically. Um, history suggests that we're probably no more fractured today than on issues than we have been in the past. But my opinion is that what seems to be the case is that we're always in a political season, always in one campaign or another. Our challenges, all of them, one way or another, seem to find their way up as political issues and political discussions. I want to ask you both, have we actually reached a point of no return where all we can do is turn on each other every two, every four, every six years? Or are there some small steps that can be taken that can get us out of this big hole we seem to have dug ourselves into? Any, either one, jump in, please. Well, I'll, I'll jump in real quickly. I would say that there are small steps that are being taken. Um, the first step that needs to be taken is that we got to uh, elect 
Joe Biden uh, as president and Kamala Harris as vice president. I think the sooner President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence are out of the house, this country will begin to uh, heal. And that's really what we need because we are a country right now that's divided, largely because of the consistent rhetoric of divisive uh, tactics, divisive talk and speech um, from this president. Um, And so I think that's the first step. Uh, I believe that Joe Biden will not only restore the economy, build it back better. He will make sure that people with pre-existing conditions won't have their health care taken away from them. And we want to make sure that particularly minority-owned businesses, small businesses, um, female-owned businesses, Black businesses, Asian businesses, Hispanic businesses, they all have the true support that they need. And so I think that's, that's the first step. The second step is, is that we've got to tell the truth about this deadly pandemic. It is killing African-Americans at a higher rate than any other race in this country. Just right here in Georgia, we're almost now at 8,000 deaths, maybe even past 8,000 deaths now. But over half of those deaths are people of color, particularly Black people. And so one of the things that Brian and I always agree upon is that we, for the last you know 40 plus years of, of living in this country, we wake up every morning. I know I'm Black. Brian knows that he's white. And so what we do is, is that we have a very uncomfortable conversation about race and about racism in this country. And it exists. One of the things that I respect mostly about Brian is he tells me the truth about what he hears from some of his white friends when it comes to issues of police reform and issues of uh, health care, issues around unarmed black men and women being shot by white police officers. And, you know, also I tell Brian the truth of what my black family and friends tell me about how they feel uh, about what's going on and particularly about white people. But what gives me hope is when I look at the white folks in my neighborhood, many of whom I never had a conversation with about anything. When I start seeing them putting Black Lives Matter signs in their yard, that means something. And not only are they putting signs in their yard, they're actually stopping to take the time to participate in the peaceful protesting that's going on, not just here in Georgia, but all across the country. But I want to go on the record and say this, number one, as a Black man and as a pro-business Democrat, I do not condone, nor do I want to even give anybody the inkling that I support the destructive behavior by different groups uh, in this country that are taking away the peaceful protesting that's going on, the message, the true message behind the Black Lives Matter movement. I do not support defunding the police department. What I do support is making sure that we support the men and women who wake up every morning, putting their lives on the line for us to protect us and to, more importantly, uphold that oath that they took. Um, And so, Democrats, we got to be very intentional when we talk about that, because there are those in the Republican Party that makes you believe that we support all these anarchists and and these Antifa uh, movement people moving to the suburbs and you know, whether they take MARTA there or they drive or they walk, they're going to just tear the suburbs apart. They're just going to, you're not safe anymore. And so we cannot let the Republicans uh, define us. And then lastly, is that we got to continue to have more conversations like this uh, with the ability to come and listen, knowing that you probably totally disagree with the person you're talking to, but try to really make sure that you are learning something uh, from them in that conversation. And so while we are a very divided country right now, there's tribalism on both sides. 
I believe that we will get back to a country where we are truly able to have a civil debate where diplomacy is going to be paramount. And we're not going to have someone in the White House that literally is trying to universally suppress people uh, right to vote. And notice I say universally. I think that the president's strategy is to just make up all these things about voter fraud and mail-in ballots. And, you know, Lord knows what he's trying to do with the United States Postal Service. All these things to universally su suppress people from voting. And I just want people to understand that they must vote. Uh, they must vote early. And it is it is definitely, I believe, the most important election of my lifetime. Well, I think we have had worse times in American history. I mean, the Civil War led to more than half a million Americans dying. And of course, that was a much bigger percentage of the population then than it is today. And we've been divided. We have had violence. I think what's different here and what concerns me is I think historically we've had a pendulum swing uh, between uh, fierce partisanship and uh, and then back toward more of compromise and, and unity. But there's always going to be some partisan divide in this country, in a country this diverse and of this size. What concerns me moving forward is that we no longer work off of a common book of facts. We now have so many outlets that cater to our own worldviews, that echo our preconceived notions, and that uh, demonize the other side, the people who don't see the world the way that we do. And I think that that is true on both sides. And that is, is the, what I consider to be the biggest hurdle to getting past the tribalism. Uh, now, what I think will happen is, you know, we've had this partisan divide where on one party you have a, uh, the GOP, which is overwhelmingly white, and then the Democratic Party, which is uh, much more of a diverse coalition. Well, the diverse coalition in this country is the growing part of the country. And so at some juncture, that's going to create a wave election for Democrats, and there won't be a swing back to an all-white party ever again. It just, it just won't happen. And so we'll have a realignment. And I, I think once we have two parties that have a lot of diversity in it, uh, that'll be a, a, a new day in this country where we can have a little bit of a fresh start. Interesting. Gentlemen, this has been a, a tremendous conversation. I really do appreciate it. But before I let you go, as a closing thought for our listeners, I have three questions for you both. What is the one thing you are most proud of in your experience as a political consultant? What is the one thing that has or has not happened that you regret? And most importantly, what is the one thing that causes you the most concern if we don't get it right? For me, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the work I'm most proud of was the the governor's campaign in 2010. I wanted to come home. I wanted to do a statewide race in Georgia. And the governorship of Georgia is one of the most powerful constitutionally in the country. And so it was big stakes. And working in the governor's office and getting to go all over this beautiful, wonderful, thriving state was just the time of my life. It was four and a half years in the governor's office, and I was able to meet so many interesting people, build a network of contacts that have been very important to me in my business venture as Robinson Republic. What have I not done? I, unlike Theron, Theron's now working on the Biden-Harris campaign and he worked on the Obama campaign. I have not had the chance to do a presidential. I'm 45 years old now, so the window is probably closed for me. But 
I would love to get out there and do that at some juncture and go do those early primary states and just do the whole thing. I just think that would be an absolute blast. And what concerns me is that this toxicity, this venom in our system just continues to to get worse because I think that it's not inevitable that we bounce back. There is historically the risk of national decline. And with a national debt over $25, $26 trillion, with a Congress that no longer functions, with so much partisanship over the makeup of the Supreme Court, I I worry that we will fight each other to a standstill and our country will just continue to go into decline. That's my, my fear. Darren, what about you? I am most proud of this, quite frankly, being able to um, be blessed with the opportunity to uh, be successful as a black man in this in this business. Um, you know, it's hard running a small business. Brian runs a small business. But, you know, as a black man, we're constantly uh, being judged by our parents, uh, who we affiliate with, what we say. And so it's an everyday struggle to make sure that I'm able to run a company that's bipartisan that is able to work with a lot of different people, a lot of different Democrats, Republicans, independents. Um, the one thing I haven't done yet is I just really feel like my people are still in a high state of poverty right now. Way stagnation is real in this country. We have a, peop- a lot of people who are being left out. And I really need to make sure that I do everything I can to make sure that young people have the same access and opportunities that I had in life. And what was the third question? What is the one thing that causes you the most concern if we don't get it right? Trump. Period. I guess that's it in a word. Theron, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Hidden Legal Figures. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and really appreciate you joining us. You bet, Jerry. Thank Thank you. Thank you. That was the first installment of our segment where we connect the past to the present called Can I Get a Witness? Thanks again to our special guests, Theron Johnson and Brian Robinson. We'll resume our historical focus on Reconstruction in our next episode, where we will highlight the forces that brought Reconstruction to a close. As always, thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in each week for a new episode of Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast.